we started this series a couple weeks ago, Ancient Prayers in the Modern World. Uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Mark started us off uh, looking in James chapter 5 of really the overview of this series and, and really what an effective prayer is. And then last week, looking at our model of prayer, going through the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And, you know, and the prayers as we, you know, the thing to understand is I want to emphasize that the, the model of prayer that the Lord gave us isn't this just repetitious thing that we just do all the time just to do it. It's not rote that way. It does give us a good structure. It gives us good instruction and tools on how we should pray. Um, but then, you know, we do have specific prayers that we pray sometimes. Um, the, the, the prayer that we're going to look at tonight is a very specific prayer on repentance, okay? So sometimes prayers need to be focused. And that's what we're going to look at. I, so I, I wanted some feedback here from you guys. So I'm going to ask a question, and just please just answer. So tell me, think about times in your life when you have found it easy to pray. I mean, it's just flowed out. It's been simple. It's, been, it's just been an easy thing to do. When are some times it's been easy to pray? Okay, when your backup is against the wall, and it's kind of your only hope, like a desperation, God, I need you, you better be here. Easy time to pray. What's another easy time to pray? For, for forgiveness, for what? Something good happens, right. Baby's born, there's a baptism, there's something great, and thank you, Lord, thank you, Jesus, right? Yeah, the thank you, Jesus prayer, that's an easy prayer to pray. When is it hard to pray? When is it most difficult to go before the Lord? When you're overwhelmed. When else? I'm hearing, I'm hearing, over here? A lost, child. a lost child. Conviction when you sin. You know, when you, th- when you think about this, when we have really blown it, when we know we have sinned against the Lord, and maybe it's a sin that we've kind of just kept doing, it is hard to go before the Lord in those times, isn't it? It's hard. Have you ever felt like you pray and you pray about a sin issue in your life, but it just doesn't go away? You, you never find the victory over it that you desperately want? Have you ever, have you ever experienced that? Uh, how do we, how do we come before God about sin in our lives and actually find victory? How do we do that? Uh, part of the issue, part of the issue may be that our prayers tend to be confessional and not repentant. I, I think that's a common thing. Our prayers tend to be very confessional, we, meaning we agree with God about our sin. That's what confession means. You're agreeing with God. Yes, I did that. Yes, that's a sin. You were in your, yes, God, and I'm sorry I did that. Please forgive me. We've all prayed a prayer probably just like that verbatim, right? But we're not drilling down deep enough to turn from the root of the sin. Because that's what repentance is. Repentance drills down deep and finds the root of the sin and turns from the sin on that deep level. You see, the ancient prayer that we're looking at tonight is going to help us learn a couple things. It's going to help us learn what sin is, what repentance is, and how we come before the Lord in a right way that we can indeed find victory over our sin and give the Lord much glory. That's what we're going to learn tonight, okay? Um, we're going to be in Psalm 51, so go ahead and open up your Bible to Psalm 51. Or open up your app or whatever. And I'm going to encourage you to keep it open. We're going to, we're going to be digging in this, in this psalm tonight. Okay? Now, as you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of introduction to this psalm. Psalm 51 is one of the seven penitential psalms. Penitential psalms. The other penitential psalms are Psalm 6, 25, 32, 38, 130, and 143. Now, penitent 
penitent means humility. It means regret. It means sorrow. How many people like Indiana Jones? Remember the Indiana Jones movies? Okay, remember the third, remember the, yeah, the third one? Um, you know, the, uh, the, uh, where they're going after the Holy Grail, whatever that was called. And uh, he's towards the end of the movie, and he's going through all these traps that were set up to get to the Holy Grail. And there was one of the clues was the penitent man will pass. And he's like, penitent, penitent, penitent. Oh, he's humble. He kneels before, and he kneels down, and the blades come, and they just miss him, right? Penitent, this idea of humility, this idea of regret, this idea of sorrow, okay? Uh, the Latin root is of this word is where we get our English word, repent, okay? So repent finds its root in the word penitent, okay? So Psalm 51, hopefully you're all there. We're going to read the whole thing, okay? Whole thing. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father God, oh, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that, that what we're going to learn tonight is that we can boldly approach your throne of grace in times where we have really blown it. Lord, thank you for giving us your word to teach us how to pray and that this prayer of David thousands of years ago is effective and powerful in our lives today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let me give you some context to what we're talking about. Um, the, the context of this psalm goes all the way back to 2 Samuel chapters um, 11 and 12. Okay, that, that's the context of this psalm. Because David wrote this psalm in response to something. If your Bibles may have a little header on Psalm 51, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Okay? That's the context that, that David, that this, this psalm birthed out of. Now, what I'm going to do, we're not going to read all of 11 and 12 in 2 Samuel, because I'll be teaching until midnight tonight. So, let me just give you some highlights. Okay? Um, in chapter 11, verse 1, we find out something very important. 
is this. David stays home. In the first verse of 2 Samuel 11, it says, basically, it was a time when the kings went to war. They went to battle. And the Israelite army was at war. But David did not go. He stayed home. That's really important. He stays home. And then the next few verses, uh, 2 through 6, is where he sees Bathsheba. Lust kicks in. He commits adultery. And there's a pregnancy. That's the next few verses. Verses 7 through 27 in chapter 11. Then we see, uh, then we see David finding, about, finding out about the pregnancy. And keep in mind at this point, you know, it's not like women find out they're pregnant as soon as intercourse happens, right? So a little bit of time went by here, maybe a couple months. We, uh, sometimes, you know, we need to keep in mind the passages of time that goes on. So we already know a couple months has gone by, and he finds about the pregnancy, and now he begins to lie, manipulate, and he conspires to murder. He wants to, he wants to arrange Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to die. Okay? He first tried to make it so like, hey, bring him home from battle, and they can be together so he'll think the baby is his. But that didn't work out because Uriah actually had like integrity where David didn't, and um, he wouldn't do that. And so he sent him back to the battle, put him at the front line, so he got killed in battle. And we see this very um, sobering verse, the very last verse of 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, that says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That is not a verse I want written about me, right? (laughs) So that's kind of where he's at right now. And we get into chapter 12, and the first nine verses is the confrontation by the prophet Nathan. Nathan was the prophet in the land at this time, and he comes and tells David the story about the man with the sheep. The poor man who had one sheep and the rich man who had a lot of sheep, but the rich man took the poor man's one sheep you know, for this feast. And David freaks out, who's this guy? I'm going to bring justice on him. He gets all like kingly, right? And Nathan says, you're the man. And just unloads on David what he did. Part of that in the next five verses, 10 through 15, um, there are some curses and consequences laid out to David because of his sin. Some curses and consequences that he will have to endure because of his sin. And in verse 13, upon Nathan confronting him and laying out these curses and consequences, David says, 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Okay, so David is coming to his senses, and he's seeing what he's done. Okay? Uh, 16 through 23 talks about the death of the child. So check this out. The, Bathsheba carried the child to term and had the baby. And the baby got sick. And it says on the seventh day of the sickness, the baby died. And David goes through this time of mourning and repentance in light of this. And in verse 20 of 2 Samuel 12, it says, Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying this is what happened, but you know what? David was stuck in this, in this cycle of sin for at least a year. That's, about, that's the time period that's going by between 2 Samuel 11 and 12, about a year has gone by. I'm guessing maybe at this point, he said he went to the house of the Lord and he worshiped. Maybe this is when he wrote this psalm. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe it happened earlier. Uh, and then we see in verses 24 and 25 um, of chapter 12 is the, actual, is the birth of Solomon. Um, so um, the baby that came after um, the one that died with Bathsheba. So we look at these chapters These are dark and sobering chapters in the Bible, aren't they? They're dark, they're sobering. This is and they're about one of the great heroes of the Bible. I mean, this is about the slayer of giants. This is about the sweet psalmist of Israel. You know, this is about the great king. This is about the man after God's own heart. The guy who was 
neglecting his kingly duties and who was giving into his lust and who was committing adultery and lying and manipulating and conspiring to murder. That's who we're talking about. So, if a man like that could fall like he did and still maintain his relationship with God and his place of prominence in Scripture, what hope that gives to us. Right? Man, I have hope now. I mean, I haven't conspired to murder anybody. You know, I realize. So, but, I mean, I, I get a little bit of hope from here. I get a little bit of hope from here. So as we read and study Psalm 51, which is David's prayer upon being confronted by the prophet, what does it teach us about how to truly and deeply pray to confess and repent of our sin? That's what we're looking at. This psalm teaches us three foundational beliefs necessary to effectively pray for repentance. And upon looking at these foundational beliefs, we'll look at seven elements of a repentant prayer. So we're gonna, I'm going to reference a lot of things. We're going to move pretty quickly. There's a couple things I'm going to land on and we're going to spend a little bit of time on, but we're going to keep things moving, okay? So foundational belief number one is on the nature of God, the nature of God. A.W. Tozer, a uh, famous theologian and author, he wrote in his classic book, The Pursuit of God, he said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Okay, A.W. Tozer. So what this means is, for the believer, in our case, our perception of God dictates how we interact with him. Our perception of God will dictate how we interact with him. Here's what I mean. If we first and foremost view God as judge, we will live lives of fear and duty. Be filled with fear and duty if he is judge. I'm reading a, um, I'm reading a, uh, a biography on Martin Luther um, right now. And, you know, before Martin Luther was, uh, was really converted, really, and, and, and just discovered the gospel, he, he was fearful of this judge God, okay? I mean, scared God. I mean, so in tr- radical transformation in his life. So if you view him as judge, you're going to be a fearful person, just full of duty of what you have to do to make him happy, all right? And you'll never feel like you're making him happy enough. If you first and foremost view him as love, let's say, and it's way swung on the other side, you live with no real conviction of sin, and you abuse grace, okay? Judge on one side, love on the other. But God is utterly different. He is utterly different, God is what? He is holy, holy, holy. And what the word holy means, he means different. It means set apart. I am a different God. I am not just just judge. I am not just love. I am a balance between them. I am holy, holy, holy. The perfect balance of love and justice best illustrated on the cross where the justice for sin was paid and the love of God was made manifest at the same time. Okay? We have to have a proper view of God as we approach him in prayer and keep some key truths in mind uh, when we are particularly coming before him in confession and repentance. So here are some truths about God. Uh, First thing that we see, and we're back in Psalm 51, verse 1, that God is merciful. He's merciful. Have mercy on me, O God. It says, according to your abundant mercy. Mercy is this goodness, is this kindness, is this faithfulness. Mercy is the removal of a punishment that's deserved. It's mercy. God is merciful. Verse 1 also tells us that God has steadfast love. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. God's love is consistent. His love is unwavering. His love is not like your love and my love, completely dictated by our emo- emotions a lot, right? He is completely consistent and unwavering in his love. 
We also see in verse 4 that God is just in judgment. Look at verse 4. It says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So when we see this word just, we're understanding that this means he's righteous. He will always make the right call. He will always make the right call. You guys ever hear that story um, of this uh, Major League Baseball umpire? He had retired, and he was doing this interview. And the interviewer asked, hey, how many wrong calls did you ever make at the plate? He's like, never. He's like, that ball wasn't anything until I said what it was. It wasn't a ball, it wasn't a strike. <laughs> so, you know, that's not what we're talking about with God, though. I mean, because God has a standard. He's given us we know what pleases God. That's why he's given us his word while we have the law. We know these things that God expects. He is righteous. And with his judgment, you know, in our language, what this word judgment means is really encompassing all of our government. You know, we have this balanced three-ring government, right? The executive, the legislative, the, 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 the judicial branches. And they give each other checks and balances because none of them can trust the other one, Right? That's why it's set up that way. Well, God's completely righteous, and he embodies all of them. That's what this means. Let me read to you Psalm chapter 7. Here, I'll write this down so you know where I'm at. Psalm, Psalm 7, and it's 11 through 13. If you just want to jot it down, you can read it later. It says this, God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels, check this out, a God who feels indignation every day. That's a bad feeling, by the way, because we keep sinning. <laughs> it says, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Whew. He is a just judge. But also, God is a restorer. He's a restorer. Verse 2 David says, wash me thoroughly, cleanse me. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Verse 14, deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, of my salvation. We see these themes of God restoring. The verse says, you know, God, restore these bones you have broken. He just, he's a just judge, but in his love, he's a restorer as well. He's an amazing God. He makes broken things new. He brings dead things to life. This is what he does. Listen, no sin is too great for God to forgive, and no sinner is too sinful for him to renew. Listen to the list we just read off about David. I mean, you read some of the writings that Paul said about himself. Now, the condition with that is that we come to him repentant, right? But don't think that whatever you're dealing with right now, don't think that it's beyond the reach of his grace. Because it's not. God is a creator. Verse 10 Create in me a clean heart. This word create is the same word that Moses used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Were the heavens and the earth there? No. He created them. He created them out of what? Nothing. The same word, this word bara which means to form, making something from nothing, bringing light from dark and order from chaos. That is what this is meaning. You think about your heart when you are just caught and messed up and entangled in sin. You are dark, right? You're, you're, you're in chaos. But God is a creator that can form that back that can bring light to your dark heart and that can bring order to your chaos. 
That's the type of God we have. And God delights in humility. Verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother conceive me? David is recognizing you are God and I am not. And then verses 16 and 17 says, You will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God delights in our humility before him. James chapter 4, verse 6. James 4, verse 6. It says, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Do you want to oppose God? I, I mean, I don't, but I do. Every time I sin, I do. And every time I humble myself and confess and repent, he gives grace to those who practice humility. That's the type of God we have. So when we go before God in prayer, especially when we are going before God in prayers of confession and repentance, we need to remember who he is and approach him the right way. That he is not just fully this just God or just this loving God, but he is a perfect balance of both. And we have the great pleasure and privilege that David did not yet have, that we're on the other side of the cross. And we can look back and see the finished work of Christ. David was looking forward to it. We get to look back on it. It's a beautiful blessing we have. So the foundational belief, number one, is the nature of God. Foundational belief, number two, is the nature of sin. This is where I'm going to start messing with you guys a little bit. When we sin, we are temporarily forgetting who God is and putting our faith in a false savior. We forget that God is God, but we believe we are. That's what we're doing when we sin. So we make an independent decision to do what is right in our own eyes. You follow me? And most often, what we choose to do is based on what we're feeling at the time. You know, Pastor Mark was preaching on self-control this last Sunday. This is what we're talking about. So when we sin... We are forgetting, we're having this amnesia of really who's God around here. And we're making a decision to put ourselves in the position of God and make an independent decision of what we think is right for us to do. We do what's right in our own eyes. And the Bible says there's a way that seems right to man, but it only leads to what? Death. We put our, we put our faith in a false savior because we believe that by doing a certain action or maintaining a certain attitude, or saying certain things will help us feel better. Will help us feel better. Will meet our need in the moment. So, I'll, I'll piggyback off an illustration the pastor gave on Sunday. So, one example of this could be that we know that getting drunk is a sin. The Bible's very clear on that. But when we decide to take that bottle and to take that cup and say, you know what, I know if I drink this, it, it's, it's going to help me feel better. This is going to help me manage the stress that I have. This is going to, this is going to just kind of numb some things, and you're going to drink enough to where you're feeling that. That is making an independent decision. You're making yourself God, and you're putting your, your faith in that object, in that drink, to help you feel better. That's your functional savior. This is how sin works. And we can replace that with anything. I mean, I don't care. Food, going to movies, going on vacation. I mean, I don't care what it is. You can replace that with anything. The other way, um, that's a, that would be a sin of action, sin of, of commission. The other thing we do is uh, by neglecting to do what's good and right, we make an independent decision to not do what we should for our own comfort, Right? We neglect to do what is good and right and godly to save us from being uncomfortable. This is why 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 is so important to this whole story. 
Because David did not go to battle like he should have. He neglected to do his duty. If you look at that, David neglected his duties as king and gave himself permission to stay home and not lead his army in battle. So since he's not practicing the role of his position, he doesn't realize that he is going to redirect his God-given desire to go to battle and conquer. He was anointed king, wasn't he? God put him in that position. God gave him his spirit so he can lead, so he can rule the kingdom, so he can conquer the the, the ungodly peoples, right? It's a God-given desire of his position. So he neglected that. That desire has got to get redirected somewhere. He redirects it to Bathsheba. He's up on his roof. He looks across. This nice-looking lady's taking a bath. And suddenly his manliness and his lust kick in. And he says, bring me that woman. She becomes the new target to conquer for David to feel fulfilled. That's why that verse is so important as we understand what happened. That was the first thing that got the ball rolling. And then David's just out of control. So sin isn't just stuff we do. It's stuff that we don't do. Right? Okay. Let's dig into sin a little bit more. (laughs) You're so excited. So sin um, is transgression. Sin is transgression. We see this in verse 1, in verse 3, and in verse 13. This is a common word we hear in the Bible about sin. But what does it really mean? It means rebellion. Transgression means rebellion. It's purposefully going against godly authority. That's what transgression means. Here's another sin word in verses 2, 5, and 9. Sin is iniquity. Iniquity. What does iniquity mean? Iniquity means things like perverse. That'll put some pictures in your head. Depravity. Guilt. Okay? That's what the term iniquity carries with it. In verse 4, we see sin as being described as evil. As evil. Okay? It's just bad. It is disagreeable. I mean, these are some dictionary, you know, Bible dictionary definition things. I'm like, okay, I don't think I would say, like, disagreeable is like, I mean, that sounds a little bit too light to me. You know what I mean? But when you talk about evil, I mean, everything that, of how God is good, it's the opposite of that. It's evil. Okay, here's a fun one. Verse 4. Let me read it. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you and you only have I sinned. What this verse is showing us, which I'm going to unpack some other scriptures for you, is that sin is idolatry. Sin is idolatry. Which means it's a personal affront to God. Which means it is placing something else in God's place. It's putting something else in the place that only he deserves. And the main thing that we put in that place is us. We put ourselves there and our desires. That's the main thing that we put there. And when I, here's what I want you to understand. When we talk about idolatry, the real meaning, the deep meaning of idolatry is not the little carved statues. Okay? I'm going to read you from Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 3 3 through 6. I'll write this up here for you. Ezekiel 14, 3 through 6. Son of man, These men have taken their idols into their hearts and set a stumbling block of of iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face it comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me through their idols. 
Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. Now tell me, class, where are the idols located? In our hearts. The idols are located in our hearts. Pastor and author Tim Keller, he says, the root of every sin is a breaking of the first commandment. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. So the root of every sin in this light is idolatry. You see, the, the, the question is not what we're doing that's sinful. The question is what we're worshiping. See, now we're talking about the false God and the false Savior, right? Um, let me give you a couple key terms here. Um, I can recommend you some great reading on this if you want to talk about it. I, there are four, I think, foundational heart idols that a lot of other sins and idolatry spring up out of, okay? The first one is this, and, and this is how you assess yourself. You ask yourself this question. Life has meaning to me. My life has meaning or I'm okay, right? Today I'm feeling okay because. Here's the first one. I have influence over or recognition from others. Catch that? I'm okay. Life has meaning for me if I have influence over people and recognition from people. You see, there's a deep heart idol of power. It's your influence. It's your, what you're getting back from people. It's, man, great job. It's, hey, do you see what I am? Do you see the position I have? It's, an, it's a heart idol of power. Another one is this. Life has meaning. Or I'm okay when I am loved and accepted or respected by other people. You see, this is a heart idol of approval. And people's opinion of you becomes greater than God's opinion of you. And you're only okay if someone else says you're okay. Not God saying you're okay. No, the person next to you says you're okay. Or here's a third one. Life has meaning. I'm okay when I have or I do this pleasurable thing or activity or quality of life. If I have this new Bible... If I go on this vacation, if I have this job, if I have this certain thing that gives me comfort. Comfort's a big, deep heart idol in us. Or this fourth one. Life has meaning. I'm okay. When I have mastery, when I have order in my life, I'm in control. And I'm going to make sure everybody else bends to what I think is the right thing to do. Now, we can talk about external sins, right? And there's a lot of them. We can talk about other forms of idolatry. But I'm telling you what, I believe these four are roots of a lot of them. It's all rooted in self. How I feel I'm okay when this happens and, you know, and really, you know, functionally, functionally, the truth of the cross isn't in this conversation with yourself. So sin is idolatry. Let's look at some more as we finish this section up. Verse 5. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You see, this says, telling us that sin is inherent. This is not saying that David was a result of a, you know, adulterous relationship. That's not what this is saying. When David is saying uh, about this sin, he's talking about really what Paul writes in Romans 5.12. He's talking about, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. It's talking about, um, it's talking about our inherent sin, our sin nature that we're born with. That's what David is referencing here, that sin is inherent. 
Verse 10 is a similar theme. It says sin comes from the inside. Comes from the inside. Talks about his heart, creating me a clean heart, renew a right spirit, these things within me. Sin comes from the inside. Jesus taught in Luke 6.45, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Okay? Sin comes up from the, it's inside out always. Verse 12, sin is a thief. It's a thief. Steals the joy of our salvation because we functionally trusted in a false savior. You see how these things tie together? It's a thief because it's false. Right? And then verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Sin is blood guiltiness. You're like, whoa, okay. I haven't done the murder thing like David did. What are you talking about, Ryan? Okay. Matthew 5, 21, 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. This is the whole part where Jesus is talking about that our anger is a form of murder because when we are angry towards another person, we are killing them with our words. We are wounding their spirit. We are not speaking words of encouragement to them or exhortation to them. We're not speaking to each other in psalms and, and thanksgiving and spiritual songs as Ephesians tells us to do. So yeah, we're guilty of blood guiltiness. Every single one of us is. So, foundational belief number two is really about the nature of sin. Let's look at foundational belief number three, the nature of repentance. The common Hebrew words in the Old Testament for repentance is this word shub, and it means to turn, and this word nakam, which means uh, meaning to regret or be sorry. And then the Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia, which literally means changing of one's mind. Okay? So the totality of these words shows us that repentance is a change in belief and a change in thinking. Okay? It's a change of belief and a change in thinking. It's a heart and a mind issue. This is why we have to address the idols of our heart to truly repent. And when we change our belief, and when we change our thinking, that results in a change of living. Because it will always express itself. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's on the inside will come out of the outside. We need to change what we trust in, and what we think is right, and submit to Jesus. Okay? So, here's some things about repentance. Repentance needs to be thorough. Needs to be thorough. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me thoroughly. This is not just surfacey repentance. Oh God, I'm sorry I did that. Please forgive me. That doesn't address anything about your heart. That's just what you did or what you said. And you know what? When, if that's the only time you're telling God you're sorry, guess what? You're going to keep doing that thing. Th this is the part we talked about. I want to help you and me, believe me, I'm preaching to me right now, to find victory over sin in our life. Unless we repent on these heart levels, we won't have that victory. Verse 3 tells us repentance needs to be specific. Specific. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever be, before me. I mean, David's meditating. He, he's taking time to contemplate and knowing what he did and why he did it. Okay? You need to know what your sin is according to God's word. Not your opinion, not the person's opinion next to you. What God's word says it is. Call it what God says it is. Not what our culture says it is. Goodness gracious. If I hear the term affair one more time, I'm going to throw up. It's called adultery. That's what the Bible says it is. It's not an affair. Those are fun. Let's go on vacation. Let's do this fun thing. 
No, because adultery is destructive. And in the Bible, you know what? It's led to murder. It's bad news. Call it what God calls it. Be specific. If you stay vague in general, listen, the Bible says you need to bring things that are in the dark, bring them into the light. Shine, let Christ's light shine on it. When your sin gets shined with Christ's light, you know what? One thing, it begins to lose its power because it's not hidden in the dark anymore. And you're naming it. You name something, I'll tell you what, that's power over something when you can name it. You know, I'll tell you what, you meet somebody, and they re, you know, and then you see them again, and they remember your name. You feel, hey, they remembered my name. Not that they own you or whatever, but there's a, there's a, there's a better connection there, right? Same thing, it works this way. When you can name it, I, no, I deal with this. And then you can begin chipping away at it because it becomes specific. All right, um, verse 7. Purge me with hyssop. I shall be clean. Wash me. I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, sin, repentance is both outward and inward. It is both outward and inward. Purify, purge. This is inward. This is the heart idol stuff. Okay? The attitudes, the misplaced trust, the idols of the heart. But it's also washing. It's outward. It is our actions. It is our words. You know, we recognize, we do, we do recognize, I'll tell you what, a good, a good way to for, you know, repent with someone, and I'm sorry I did this. I did this because of this in me, and I know it caused you to feel this way. I mean, you've you got to connect the action with the heart. That's what makes good repentance. It's outward and inward. Uh, verses 8 and 12 says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold, uh, with, and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see, repentance results in joy. It results in joy. It's not just an eased conscience. It's not just, you know, well, I said I'm sorry, but I'm just really not sure if God forgave me. You know, it's not that. If you truly repent, you will truly be filled with joy. True joy because you are basking in the glow and the work of what Jesus came to live and die and raise again for. That's the joy of your salvation. You see, you're remembering when you repent, you are remembering the right and true Savior is what you're doing. You're turning away from the false God of yourself. You're turning away from the functional Savior of your sin. You're turning away from the idols of your heart, and you're remembering who the real God is and who the real Savior is. That's what you're doing. You don't stay sad. You don't stay downcast. You don't stay guilty or shameful if you've truly repented. You will be filled with the joy of your salvation. Isn't that, who, don't you want to feel that? R repentance, here's the next one, results in renewed intimacy with God. Verses 10 and 11 again, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence, take not your Holy Spirit from me. I'm not going to get into the theology of that. The big point is, it results in renewed intimacy with God. Sin brings distance. Remember, God opposes, God does what? He opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. There's distance going on there. Repentance eliminates the distance and brings you near to God. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you, the Lord says. Repentance results in willing obedience. Verse 12. Uphold with me a willing spirit. You see, this is the exact opposite of transgression, the ex exact opposite of rebellion. You willingly and joyfully obey the true God, the true king. Repentance, the next one, results in exhortation and evangelism. Listen, verse 13, Then I will teach your transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Isn't that what we're here for? Isn't that building the kingdom? Your repentance builds the kingdom as you tell your story. We were talking in a meeting this week here at the church that this is faith in real time. 
It's not just saying what Jesus did for you 20, 30 years ago when you first got saved. It's what did he do for you today, this week, on Sunday after the sermon, whenever. What's he doing in real time in your life now? He is living and he is active and he is drawing you to himself. And as you repent and turn from your false idols, turn from your false gods, turn from your functional saviors, and turn towards Jesus, the true king, the true savior, that's a testimony to tell. And that lets people know that he is living and active in your life today. And people will come to him. It says sinners will return to to you, God. Don't, listen. I know it's so hard to be honest with your sin and struggle. Believe me, I know. But listen, when you rightly repent and God restores the joy of your salvation, that is a powerful story to tell that someone needs to hear because someone needs the hope that you have. Someone needs it. That is how someone is going to come back to God. That is, someone, that is the way someone is going to come to God for the first time. Your testimony isn't just when you were 12 or 15 or 18 and got saved. It's now. Because we're always repenting. Our whole life is one of repentance. We'll stop repenting when we're in heaven. Repentance results in worship. Verse 15. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You see, it's a restoration of the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Check this out. I mean, we just talked about some serious sin in David's life that he's repenting of, right? Serious sin. David wrote Psalm 51 as a public worship song. I mean, let that sit on you. For thousands of years, there are... Jews who have sung this in temple as to help them repent. I mean, that holy cow. That's amazing to me. Let me draw something on here really quick. I know I'm pushing time, but you guys forgive me, okay? Um, I want to talk to you real quick about um, maturity. Because this... Your practice of repentance is vital in your practice of growing in Christ. Two things happen when you grow in maturity of Christ, okay? There's two arms of this. Goodness, excuse me, I'm fighting off a cold. One thing that happens is you have a growing awareness of God's holiness and love and grace, right? I think we all agree. When you grow as a Christian, you become more and more aware of how holy God is, how awesome he is, how much his grace is, how big a love he is, all that stuff, right? Right, right, right. Okay, the other thing that happens too, which should be happening kind of concurrently, if we're coordinating with the Spirit, we also grow in the awareness of how sinful we are. we realize that our sin is a lot deeper than we, we thought it was. Oh, listen, I, I became a Christian when I was a kid. My understanding of the depth of sin was like this. Right? At 45, my understanding of my depth of sin is like, you know, through the floor. Here's where I'm getting at with this, and this is how it ties into the point that we're on. When you're converted, <coughs> and you have very little understanding of both these things both ways, This is about how big the cross is in your life. And as you grow in God's awareness of his holiness and grace and love, as you grow in the awareness of how sinful you are and how much he has saved you, what happens to the cross? What's it doing? It's getting bigger, isn't it? You see, big cross equals big worship. When you begin to repent of idols of your heart and the depth and depravity of the sin that you have and you realize 
just how great a Savior he really was, the cross becomes, the, I mean, the cross in your lives is the 100-foot cross outside. And the worship that springs from that, and the evangelism that springs from that, and the hope that springs from that, and the joy that springs from that, who wants to live that way? I'm raising both hands. Dan's not even singing, I'm raising hands. Big cross, big worship. And as this cross gets bigger, it's big worship, it's big humility, it's big grace that you offer others, big patience, big love, big witness, big fruit of the Spirit in your life. That's what this means. So when you come and you pray these really hard prayers when you've blown it and you've kept blowing it over and over and over again, you need to remember the nature of God, the nature of sin, the nature of of repentance. And then I'm going to end with this. You all have this handout? Okay. If you don't have the handout, raise your hand and someone will get it to you. Seven elements of a repentant prayer. And I want to just read this verse in Hebrews. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So when it's time for you, maybe when we're done, maybe tonight when you get home, when you wake up early in the morning, and you know you've got to deal with some heart stuff and some sin stuff, and you need to drill deep into it. Here's just some seven steps you can take in this prayer. You cry out to Father God, perfect in justice and love. You pray our Father in heaven. You trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross and his advocacy for you. And you read, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We submit to the Holy Spirit. John 16, 8 tells us the Holy Spirit's job is to convict us of sin. So when you're, when you're feeling that, the Holy Spirit's working in your life. Lean into it. Don't push away from it. We honestly confess and deeply repent. Confess your sins. Repent and turn back. Number five, humbly accept the lessons and consequences. Just because forgiveness comes, and it will, when you rightly confess and repent, that doesn't mean there's not consequences you have to endure. The baby still died. Will you at that moment trust the Lord who says he will give and take away? And trust in his goodness, even if you can't understand it at the time. Number six, be encouraged by the great cloud of witnesses. I'm going to use this great cloud of witnesses very loosely. And what I'm meaning is this. We read stories of David. We can read Hebrews chapter 11 we can hear each other's stories and find encouragement. Listen, you need to talk to people in your C2 group, for your friends here that you have at this church. You need to, you know what, and it's time. If you have not really come clean with some things in your life, you need to talk to some people. You need to ask them about how, how God has worked in their life like this, how their confession and repentance have been, how their joy has been restored, because you need that encouragement. Okay, because God's at work in his people. And as David said, you know, when we do this, we're supposed to tell each other so sinners come back. And then commit to tell your story of repentance. Psalm 51, 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Just keep this with you as a, as a helpful guide as you pray. So just really be mindful right now as we close up. What sin, is there a sin just nagging at you? Just nagging at you. You know, what sin are you guilty of by either omission, things you haven't done that you should have, or commission, things that you've done you shouldn't have, and you need to go before the Lord to confess and repent? What, what is it? What sin keeps rearing its ugly head in your life? What's that besetting sin in your life that you are now seeing has a deeper root, maybe? Now you say, oh, you know what? There's, there's a heart idol attached to this. I haven't attached to it before that I need to repent on that level. Do you have a Nathan in your life who will confront you, who will practice humility 
as you hear hard words from and you can live more fully for God's glory? Do you have a Nathan in your life? I want you to remember this. God is both just and he is love. And because of faith in Jesus' complete and finished work on the cross, you can boldly approach the throne of grace, especially at the times when you are feeling most unworthy. Father God, thank you for Jesus, and thank you for that cross. Thank you for the perfect intersection of your justice and love. Thank you that we can look at the life of David, we can look at this psalm, this prayer of repentance, and we can learn how to repent rightly so sin will not have any more hold over us and that we can come before your throne of grace with confidence and boldness because of Christ. Lord, I pray for everyone here that you send Nathans into our, life, into our lives to show us our sin and give us the humility to receive it. Give us the courage to confess it and the wisdom to repent of it at the heart level, knowing that you are a good and gracious and just God who specializes in making old things new, broken things fixed, chaos into order, dead things to life. In your name we pray. And everybody said, amen. All right, love you guys. You guys have a great night.